Thanks, Kat. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany. Glad that you can worship with us both here in the sanctuary as well across the street, also online. I'm thrilled to be with you. I'm kind of in the middle of a cold, and so I'm not preaching all day, but I want to make sure that I preach this at least one time because I'm so excited about the topic. So if you would, would you take a minute? We'll pray together, and then we'll look at the text that God has for us. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls today and listen for your voice. Thank you that your desire is to be in every way uh, our source of strength, that you could so express life through us, Father, that uh, the world sees, as we have just heard read so beautifully, uh, the, the world sees light shining. We're mindful of darkness, Father, in every corner, socially, economically, politically, internationally, spiritually, emotionally, perhaps, in many of our lives. May what we hear today and how we respond release your light into the world. We pray in the name of Christ, who is our light and our hope. Amen. One of the best books I've read in the last year is a book by Jason George entitled The 3D Gospel. And the thesis of this book is that the gospel is so malleable that it's articulated uh, in different ways in different parts of the world uh, based on the culture. And as he unpacks his thesis, it proves to be very true. He talks about the West, the Asia, and the developing world, and he says that in the West, predominantly, we function in a paradigm of guilt and innocence. In other words, you're guilty in God's eyes. Wow. Guilty, right? You're, we'll adjust that, yeah. You're, you're, you're guilty in God's eyes, uh, but provision has been made through Christ, and so now uh, you can cross over and know God. You can move from guilt to innocence. However, uh, in less individualistic parts of the world, particularly in Asia, the gospel is articulated as shame and honor, which also makes a great deal of sense because uh, you, uh, in your failure, uh, are destined to shame because you've let down the community. But you can move back into a position of honor via Christ. And then in much of the developing world, the gospel is often articulated as a paradigm of movement from, from fear to power. In other words, uh, in animistic cultures, we fear the forces of darkness that are out there. They're out there in the forest, they're, they're, out, they're up there on top of the mountain, but there is a power in Christ that will enable us to overcome fear. And of course, in reality, all three of these are legitimate, all three are important, and in an increasingly pluralistic culture, we need to recover all three and live into all three. And in any part of the world, the, of course, the danger that we run is articulating the gospel in a way that truncates the other two. So in the West, we can tend to focus on guilt and innocence and miss our call to community and honor and significantly for our purposes this morning, miss the power of the gospel. That's what we really want to talk about this morning, the power of the gospel. Because in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, Paul is writing the Corinthians. Now Corinth, as many of you know, is a bastion of Greek culture. And Greek culture, of course, is where we draw our culture from as well. Uh, and if you know Greek culture at all, you know about Aristotle and Plato and all that stuff, what you know is that Greeks are into ideas and Greeks are into verbiage and Greeks are into words. So when Paul articulates in uh, his letter to the Corinthians that he's gonna come and visit them, this is what he says. He says, listen, I'm gonna come and visit you and I'm gonna find out when I visit you whether your uh, articulation of the gospel is a matter of just words or if it's a matter of words and what? Power. First Corinthians 4, 19 and 20. 
And what he's saying there is you Corinthians run the risk of talking about this, studying this, defending this, articulating this, but being completely void of the power that is inherent in the gospel. And ultimately, what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20 is this, the gospel is not a matter of words. The gospel is a matter of power. <laughs> so we need to recover this, this uh, fear power paradigm. And the question on the table then would be this, well, what does this mean, the gospel is a matter of power? What, is, what does the power look like? And what I want you to see is God's power is a power to liberate, a power to heal. God's power leads in our lives. When God's power, which is resident within us by virtue of the resurrected Jesus living in us, when that power is released, what's released in us is the capacity for spaciousness, strength, generosity, peace, freedom, justice, service. In John 8, 32, Jesus said this, all of us are slaves, but when we come to Christ, abide in Christ, allow Christ to live in us, this is Jesus' promise, John 8, 32, you'll know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. And then if the Son will make you free, you'll be free indeed. Free from self-loathing, free from shame, fear, destructive and anxious thoughts, greed, lust, addictions, incredibly, even free from our own appetites that often control us. So that we break the bondage that we have to food and phones and news and music and entertainment and sex and shopping and power. It's real freedom. And, and this is what God has for us. And of course, this power that is the gospel, the power that frees us, can go beyond these kind of what I'd call almost cursory freedoms, fundamental freedoms. And at times, the gospel manifests itself in supernatural ways as well, you know, with healings and deliverances and that kind of thing. But all of it, whether it's freedom from your addiction, freedom from your shame, freedom from your guilt, or a miraculous healing, all it has the same source, what? The power of the resurrected Jesus who lives within you. And so we're all called to live these lives, not just of innocence and honor, but lives of what? Lives of what? Power, power. right. And so we need this power. And the question on the table throughout this series, Soil Care for the Soul, is this. Like, how do I live a life of power? I don't feel powerful. How do I, how, how do I live a life... That will, that will lead me into this transformation. And, and, the, and the premise is without soil care for the soul, without spiritual disciplines, we don't have power, all we have are words. Jesus complained with the Pharisees, John chapter 5, verse 39 is this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these, the scriptures, that point to me, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. You have the text, you have ideas, you have defense of the text, you have articulation of the text, you have teaching, you have memorizing, you have studying, you have talking about, do you have the power? That's the question on the table. And, and, and the soil care for the soul is what brings that about. So this morning, in particular, three truths regarding fasting that will lead us there. And there's apples up there to make you hungry. That's why I put them there. Uh, so fasting will lead us uh, to this power of the gospel. And the truths are these. Uh, number one, fasting brings the reality of our weakness to life. Number two, awareness of our weakness creates dependency on Christ's strength. Number three, dependency on Christ's strength liberates and empowers. We're going to look at all three of those uh, in our time together this morning. And we begin here. Fasting brings the reality of our weakness to life. If I'm to live into the power of God, I will only live into the power of God to the extent that I know not as a theory or as a doctrine, but I know existentially, like by experience, I know I am weak. I have to know that. And fasting brings a reality of weakness to life. 
Why do I have to know that? Because the gospel is all about dependency from the very beginning. Our relationship with God was intended to be a relationship of dependency. So the lie in the garden was that Adam and Eve could live into the full... Hello? Man, that's weird when that happens. Like suddenly I'm lonely when, when the mic goes off, like, you're gone. Uh, the lie of the garden was that Adam and Eve could live into the fullness of their humanity without depending on God, right? Like, yeah, depend on me, says God, you'll have life. They decided to live, quote, unquote, on their own, and the tale of humanity has been a tale of brokenness ever since. So fasting is intended to create in us a return to dependency on supernatural strength. And you see this all through the scripture, uh, uh, people seeking God, fasting. Moses, uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, he goes over the mountain, he's 40 days with God, he's fasting. Jesus, fasting 40 days before his public ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Why? So that when he encounters Satan in temptation, uh, he's physically weak, and in his physical weakness, he's depending on a different source of strength. Do you see? So in my physical weakness, I'm forced now to depend upon a different source of strength. And so Jesus not only overcomes temptation, but he says after overcoming temptation, this thing that kind of becomes a mantra in his life, if you read the Gospel of John, and his, Jesus' mantra would be this, not my own. My teaching is not my own. My judgment is not my own. My authority is not my own. My will is not my own. My works is not my own. My strength is not my own. My life is not my own. Nothing that I have is mine. It all comes from God. I'm a vessel. <laughs> and I need to be filled with something that I don't have on my own. I need to be filled with nothing less than the life of God. That's Jesus. And then Jesus says, in the same way that the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm now asking you to live in relationship with me, Christ, in the same way that I, Christ, live in relationship uh, to the Father. And so as I, Christ, live in a relationship with dependency, I have nothing I'm asking you now, that's us, to live in dependency on Christ. We have what? Nothing. Apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. That's the goal. To come to kind of that point where we're living in that dependency. So what does fasting have to do with this? Well, fasting reveals our weakness. And when we're weak in any way, weakness creates in us dependency. This is what I want you to see. It's like it's entirely counterintuitive to a culture built on strength, as we'll see in a moment. But here's, this is the word of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Totally contrarian to uh, conventional wisdom. Here's Paul. When I am weak, then I am, do you know the rest? Strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Who says that in our culture? Oh, no, no, no. When you're strong, you're strong. When you're weak, you're needy. You're, you're, you're broken, you're dependent, and those words are used pejoratively. So we're called to kind of live in a culture that says to us, avoid weakness, avoid even the appearance of weakness. And this form of so-called strength translates into the way that we live our lives. I must never be weak. I, I should never be weakened by hunger or sleeplessness or by being offline so that I'm not knowing the latest thing that has happened. I should never be weakened by vulnerability through confession. I should never be cold, never be sick, never be tired. And this translates into an addiction to our appetites. Our appetites begin to control us in the name of what? Being strong. So that we can say, when I'm strong, then I'm strong. But now Paul comes along and he says, wait a minute. Don't say when you're strong, you're strong. Say when you're weak, you're strong. Therefore, you won't be afraid of what? Weakness. And in fact, fasting then is intended to show us 
this path. But unless we break our addiction to strength, our lives become incredibly contingent. We're, we're addicted to our appetites, and we create what grows in us is this anxiety that unless I'm at the top of my game, then I won't have what it takes to get the job done. And that's, that becomes true in marriage, in parenting, in work, in our desire to bless and serve others. And then what develops is a way of thinking that basically says, when I'm strong, I'm strong, therefore stay strong. And then conversely and terribly, we say, when I'm weak, I'm of no value to anyone, and we drop out. And I'm going to tell you, this is the, the, the paradigm of materialism. This is a paradigm of, of a materialistic culture that doesn't believe in supernatural power. If the only power you have is, is your, uh, you know, your body mass index and your strength and your blood pressure, then yeah, when you're strong, you're strong. But I'm here to tell you that the strength of Christ that is available to all of us in the room is not contingent on your body mass index, on your blood pressure, on your age, on your, on your weight, on how good looking you are, on how smart you are, on your IQ, on your net worth. The, the strength of Christ isn't dependent on any of these things. The reality is exactly the opposite. <laughs> the reality is that all of us in the room have this immense storehouse of resource, Christ in you, that is available to express power, confidence, joy, fruitfulness, blessing, hope, healing, service. We have a hard time believing it, though. And the fundamental reason I do think that we have a hard time is because we're materialists, functionally materialists much of the time. We believe the axioms of materialism, which basically say that this material universe is all that there is, and if that's true, then yeah, stay strong, because if you're weak in any way at all, you're going to get eaten alive. So what does God tell us to do to break that paradigm, that lie? He tells us to fast. Kind of one of the most lost spiritual disciplines in Western culture. Not in the fear-power paradigm. They fast all the time. But in Western culture, guilt-innocence, we don't, we don't fast. Why? Because we've lost our sense of the need for God's power. Why? Because we're materialists. So God tells us to fast. Why? Because fasting exposes our weakness. It exposes how easily enslaved we are to our various appetites. Try letting go of anything for a period of time and watch what happens. Like you begin to obsess about that thing. And all of us in the room have uh, kind of, my, I would say, mild addictions. All of us in the room have mild addictions. And we don't even know their addictions because they're ubiquitous. In other words, they're so, they're so like, they're such a part of our lives. We're just like, yeah, of course I have a full French press every morning. Of course. Who doesn't? Isn't this like the way life is? In fact, I sanctify my French press. It's called coffee with God. Like to the point where, like, if I don't have my French press, God isn't in the room, right? It's like we have these habits that we develop that are, that are like, not covert, but kind of mild addictive behaviors. Of course we watch the news in front of the television set. Of course I put, uh, I always click yes to notify me for Instagram or an email so that I'm continually interrupted so that I know immediately when anyone cares about me. Of course. Why wouldn't I, right? So when you, why, like why do we do this? Here's why. We have this reward center inside of us 
that gives, me, that gives me a hit of a pleasure drug, apparently called dopamine. I'm not a chemist, but I believe it. It's there somewhere. And this, and this, this hits me when I shop, when I get likes on Facebook, when I get little hearts on Instagram, when I uh, have sex with my spouse. And yes, this hits me when I eat this lovely meal of French toast smothered in butter and real maple syrup, four slices of thick, crisp bacon, dopamine overload, right? Yeah, so, so when you're fasting from something, then this, like, this pleasure hit, there's a, it's truncated. And suddenly now, no, we don't have a pleasure hit. And if it's fast food, or excuse me, if it's a food fast, not fast, <laughs> forget about fast food. This is not a diatribe on McDonald's here. If it's a food fast, it's a double-edged sword because not only is there no blood, uh, 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 pleasure hit, but it messes with your blood sugar as well, which is why, by the way, huge caveat here, don't fast from food without medical advice. Like, I'm not telling everybody to go out and fast from food. I'm telling you a principle here. You got to apply it now with your doctor. Not all of you should fast from food. So just as long as you understand that, right? But for those of you who can, and I'm one who can, when I fast, uh, it affects the blood sugar as well, right? And, and so you've, like, I'm not only missing the dopamine hit, but, like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling weak. But a fast that is a deprivation to any appetite reveals my weakness. Not just food, any appetite. Addiction is a form of self-medication that, that many of us do either out of habit, like my French press, or with trigger points. In other words, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm bored, I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I re I'm rejected. So what do I do? I, and you fill in the blank. When I'm, when, when I'm triggered, when I'm lonely, I shop. When I'm tired, I eat. When I'm bored, I cruise the internet. When I'm angry, I whatever. Do you see? Like, and we develop these habits, we self-medicate, and, and, and then God says, fast. And so when you fast, this is all revealed, like our habits are revealed. And, and then when our habits are revealed, our weakness is exposed, which brings me to the second point. Awareness of my weakness creates dependency on Christ's strength. So this is very good. When I fast, it exposes my weakness. But the good news is, awareness of my weakness creates dependency on Christ's strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 is where the Apostle Paul says, we're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God who makes us adequate as ministers of a new covenant. And this was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul says, look, I had this, ama this amazing, immense vision. God took me kind of up to heaven in a vision. I saw heaven. I, I, I got the eternal perspective. But now, in order to keep me humble, God, there was this thorn in the flesh. There was this affliction. It was a bodily affliction. I prayed, and I asked God to take it away. I asked once, twice, three times. God says, no, not only will I not take it away, but I'm going to teach you to do this, to rejoice in your weakness. Why? Because when when you are weak, then in your weakness, you'll be dependent on God. And now in your sense of abject, existential, real dependency, not theory, real dependency. I'm weak. I need you. When you're weak, now I, Christ, will make available to you and release all the resources of my resurrection life. When you're weak, then you're strong. 
That's the teaching. <laughs> so awareness of our weakness creates dependency on Christ's strength. And we're told all through the Bible to be strong, like Joshua 1, be strong, don't fear, be strong. However, all of the strength should be kind of framed with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. In other words, yes, be strong, but be strong how? Be strong in the strength of Christ so that the strength upon which we rely will be the strength of Christ at our foundation, not our own independent strength. Why? Because my human strength is fickle. It's dependent upon all kinds of things. Full stomach, good night's sleep, nice workout routine, disease-free body, money in the bank. And when we take the culture's definition of strength, we come to, the belief, to believe that strength requires all this stuff, plus intimacy, plus, plus popularity, uh, plus whatever. And, and so we end up chasing this kind of American or at the least Western definition of strength thinking that we need this strength in order to be useful for the gospel. We don't. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I am weak, so I'm going to blow my nose right now because I have a cold. You could, can you turn this off for a second? <laughs> this, is actually, this is actually why I want to preach this today because this is a perfect example of what we're exactly talking about, right? Like, we show up not because we're strong. We show up because we're called. And when we show up because we're called, even when we're weak, there's a strength available to us. Does this make sense to you? I think it's hugely significant in our lives. So, uh, awareness of our weakness creates dependency on Christ's strength. And though uh, God did not say to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, be strong in the Lord, he made the army learn the lesson. Because as they went into the city of Jericho, Joshua chapter 5, God says, hey, before you go in, just so that you are living out of the strength of my provision, says God, I want you to take the whole army and what? Circumcise the whole army. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever studied military stuff before, but that's not in any military handbook as a brilliant strategy to win a war. It just isn't. And so, you know, circumcise the whole army, and then every day they can walk around the city, you know, or they limp around the city, if you want to look at it that way. How are they going to go? And at last day, they're going to blow some trumpets, and then the walls will come down. Are they strong? They're immensely strong. They're strong enough to, to, to capture and destroy and occupy a walled city. But their strength isn't human strength, and they know it. And when the walls fall down, who gets the glory? Not the army. God gets the glory. Why? Look what God did. That's the story God wants to write in every one of our lives. When we're weak, then we're strong. So the circumcised army won the battle. Hungry Jesus was still strong enough to overcome the temptation of Satan himself who offered him all the world. Weak Paul changed Western civilization by pushing the good news of Christ out to all nations. Weak St. Francis started a movement to address both care for creation and care for the poor. A man with no formal theological training started a movement known as Torchbearers that became 27 Bible schools around the world. A few young adults with no money, no status, no power, wrote literature advocating resistance to the German Reich in World War II, helping to embolden both the Allies and the German resistance movement, leading to an end of the war. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. God doesn't need your power, he needs your weakness. And you then, in your weakness, need God's power. And when you need God's power, God's power is available. 
But if you continue to rely on your human strength, the strength of your personality, your wisdom, your human resources, to some extent, you miss the story of hope that God wants to write through you. Fasting from anything, then, moves our awareness of our weakness from theory to reality. I hope that makes sense. And so dependency on Christ's strength also moves then, moves us from theory to reality. And the result of that is Christ's power, literally the power to heal and bless and serve and impart hope, the, the, the power to see with wisdom and clarity. It's a power that's within us all the time, but it's a power that's thwarted. First Corinthians 4, power is greater than words. And in evangelicalism, we're stuck often in this guilt-innocence paradigm. And so, are we justified? Yeah. Saved? Yeah. Got our ticket punched? Going to heaven? Yeah. Do we, have, do, we, do we see the power of the gospel realized in our lives so that we're increasingly freed from the addiction to our appetites, so that we're increasingly freed from destructive behavior like, like shame and rage and lust and greed? Do we, see, do we see the power of God breaking strongholds? Not so much. Because we're looking to human strength maybe to break the strongholds and that won't work. So, the pattern. Fasting, we know we're weak. Awareness of our weakness, now with empty hands, I'm hungry for something, I'm hungry for Christ. When I depend on Christ, depending on Christ liberates. Uh, the ancient Greeks had this word, archon. And an archon is a powerful force that will kind of overtake a life. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter, right? There's a dark spiritual force that will overtake a life and control a life, but always this dark force that will overtake a life, it always comes clothed as something respect, respectable and desirable, right? And so uh, I would say, now this is McDonald's, like fast food is an archon, right? Like it looks really good. It's cheap. It's easy. It's fast. It's filling. It's destructive in, in so many ways, destructive. Destructive to the environment, destructive to our appetites, destructive to our health. Your phone can be an archon. Identity politics is an, is an archon. Credit card debt, slavery to the global economy, body image. Food can be an archon. Sleep can be an archon. Work can be an archon. Any even healthy appetite can be an archon to the extent that it comes and it controls us and now uh, the, what was given to us as a gift from God becomes an addiction, destructive. And, and, and I hope you see this because every gift, that God has, every gift God has given us is open to destructive abuse, every gift. Food, God gives us food and so what happens? Obesity, anorexia, bulimia, food obsessions, it's a problem. God, God gives us sex, and what happens? Pornography, prostitution, sexual addiction, uh, broken relationships, sex trafficking, human slavery. God gives us money. What happens? Immense wealth for the few, poverty for the many, workaholism. Every gift is, becomes an archon, open to abuse. And so the question is, like, how do we break that power? Well, the, the fasting is important for exactly this. Because the good news of the gospel is this. Now, none of us in the room need to be kind of controlled by archons. We don't need to be controlled by work, by sex, by food, by, by money, by body image. None of us. We can be free. 
And all of us will be free to the extent that we depend on Christ's strength, and that's what fasting does in a couple of ways. First, fasting breaks our addictions. Paul warns against those, Philippians 3.19, very practical in the Bible. Paul warns against those whose God is their stomach. Now, how, like, how would you know if your stomach is a God? How would you know that? Here's how. Skip a meal. And if, like, if you skip a meal and all you can think about is food, and you become angry and you're throwing things at people, they're like, that's a sign that food has like a grip on you. Or maybe caffeine has a grip on you. Or try going a week without your credit cards. Or try going a half a day without your phone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like fasting breaks addictions. Why? Because first it reveals addictions. And then once we see them, if you really want to be free, then with empty hands, you look to, to Christ to fill that void. And it, it, I'll tell you in a minute, it takes time to do this. But it works. So we have addictions. Fasting breaks our addictions. When I was on sabbatical, my wife and I, we were hiking, and we were up in the Alps, and our phones often didn't work uh, up in this high country. And so we'd go days without hearing the news. And uh, when I'm in the city, I'm, I'd, I'd go minutes without hearing. Like my phone will beep when the World Series is over or when, you know, like, when any significant event happens and you know it instantly and there was a breaking of this addiction to know everything immediately, and a breaking of an addiction to the news that happened almost accidentally. It was incidental to our larger purposes, but uh, we kind of realized, man, we're addicted to information. And that was, a, that was a, over, slowly over time, 40 days we're hiking, over time that fast, that news fast was really very, very good for us. So, fasting breaks addiction. Second, fasting empowers us and liberates us through prayer and service. A couple of fasts that are mentioned in the Bible. Matthew 17, 21, Jesus cast some demons out of a guy, and uh, the, uh, the guy says, how come your disciples couldn't cast out the demon? And then Jesus says, well, this kind, it was a, it was a special demonic situation. He says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, I'm like, I don't want to get into the particulars of that exorcism, other than to say this, uh, f- like when we fast in order to pray for a specific thing, that fasting creates in us uh, like this existential awareness, this uh, an experience, an awareness of God's power. Do you see? Like, oh yeah, I'm fasting. Why? Because I'm. I'm. This is my way of saying through action, uh, I don't have what it takes to break this. I don't have what it takes to, to change this. I don't have what it takes to solve this. I need a strength I don't have. That's one reason to fast, to fast and pray over situations. Isaiah 58, uh, which was read so well, when Isaiah speaks of this, uh, fasting had denigrated into a ritual, just something religious people do, to get it out of the way. But remember, we started this discussion with what? The need to see God's what? Power released in our lives. There's a power resident within us, but it's often kind of held down by virtue of our dependence on human strength. Hear me. When this power is released, it's released to what end? Released to what end? I'll tell you what end. Refugee resettlement. Food for the hungry. 
uh, meals for the homeless, relationships built, uh, marriages reconciled, uh, race relations, bridges built. And, and the complaint of Isaiah is, yeah, oh yeah, you're fasting, but the power of God isn't being released. Like to what end? Fasting breaks our addiction to human strength and pleasure, and in our weakness, we pray and look to Christ, and Christ answers, and he breaks the power of the archons that have controlled you, so that now you move from like a consumer to a producer, and now you step out into the world in compassion and justice and mercy and generosity and hospitality and service. Why? Because now you're operating not out of a position of need and addiction and archons and fear and greed and shame. You're operating now in the spaciousness of nothing less than the resurrected Jesus, who's like this, I'm going to bless the world through you. That's what happens to people who fast. Why don't we? <laughs> well, we will. We need to. Because the power of God is at stake. I began by saying we live in a material world. One of the ways I learned this is in uh, years ago in Alberta, up in Canada, I spoke in this little tiny church, and I encountered the testimony of a shaman who'd become a Christian in Saskatchewan, and this shaman had written a book entitled The Bushman and the Spirit, out of print, maybe you can find it somewhere online. But here, this was his story. A missionary befriends this shaman, and the shaman says, remember, uh, fear and power. The shaman says, oh yeah, you have a god. My gods are more powerful than your gods. And so the missionary said, how do you know? He says, well, we'll put it to the test. He says, uh, you set out your traps. They were both trappers. And I'll put my curse on your traps. And then you pray for God to bless your traps. And then I'll set out my traps. And you pray that God will keep, your God, you pray your God will keep my traps empty. This is the shaman speaking. And then he goes, the guy with the most pel, uh, the, 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 the most whatever, dead animals, I don't know what you call it in trapping. <laughs> the guy with the most pelts, is that what they're called? Wins. Well, know who the true God is. This is like Elijah stuff, right? Mount Carmel in the Old Testament. Like, hey, come, who has the fire? Like, we don't think this way at all. But the missionaries like this, I'm in. I'm reading this and I go, oh, there's a disaster just around the corner. <laughs> What's going to happen here? And sure enough, uh, you know how this story ends. Like the, the missionary sets his traps, the shaman goes, he puts a little stuff on each trap and, <laughs> you know, the voodoo stuff, whatever. And then, and then the missionary stays home and he reads his Bible and he prays that God would close the, the traps of the, of, the, of the shaman so that God's power would be revealed. And sure enough, the shaman comes home empty and the missionary says, hey, I got so many pelts, let me just share half mine with you. And the shaman becomes a Christian, goes on to be a missionary, goes on to be an evangelist. Why? Because this isn't about just guilt and innocence. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not just guilt and innocence. This is about what? Power. Do you believe it? Do I believe it? Sometimes not. Because I'm saturated in the materialism of my culture. How do I break that? Fasting. <laughs> That's where it starts. So, uh, next steps. Here's what we're going to do. And we'll put this online, so you don't have to copy it right now. But I'm going to encourage you to practice a little fasting this week. Just a little, like baby steps. A quote from this book, uh, 
newly released by Richard Dahlstrom. Uh, <laughs> one of the things he learned on this trek, apparently, he says one of the particularly annoying realities of transformation is that it's gained slowly. Gains are about as perceptible as watching hair grow, which is a way of saying you won't feel a thing other than disappointed. Like you start these disciplines and you're like, whatever, and you quit. Oh, no, no, hear me. The gains happen slowly. Uh, Jack Kerouac said it this way, walking on water wasn't built in a day. Like you want the power of God re re released in your life? Then don't say, I'm gonna fast 40 days. Just try turning your phone off for half a day. Start simple, but simple and consistent is gonna trump your giant effort that will fail. Do you see? We'll talk much more about this in two weeks when we pull this all together. But my encouragement to you is to take a step. Take a step. And now you understand why. Why? Because fasting makes me aware of my weakness. My weakness makes me depend on Christ's power. And when I depend on Christ's power, Christ's power is liberated, released in me to serve and bless the world. That's why we fast. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, your desire not to weigh us down with burdens, but to heal us, to liberate us, to transform us. So toward that end, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us right now. As we approach your table, uh, we, we approach with humility, recognizing, Father, that our desire is... Uh, that you be our source of strength in every way. Meet us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.